This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthVest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, we have a special podcast focused on issues pertaining to technology, development, and tech investing. We have Sean Vanderwall and Sagar Joshi uh, joining us today. They're both managing partners at Drawing Capital. To learn more about Drawing Capital's research and opinions, you can sign up for Drawing Capital's free weekly newsletter at drawingcapital.substack.com. We should mention before we begin that all opinions expressed by John Vanderwall and Sagar Joshi in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are solely for their own opinions. This podcast is not an offer nor recommendation to buy or sell securities of any investment fund, nor solicitation of offers to buy any such securities. An investment in any strategy, including strategies described herein, involves a degree of risk. Clients of Drawing Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. With that, let's get started. I'd like to start with kind of the topic that, you know, there's been increasing calls to break up big tech. Uh, recently, we saw Representative David Cicilline, who was a Democrat in Rhode Island, was referring to the idea of breaking up big tech as the Glass-Steagall for the internet. How feasible is breaking up some of these larger companies, and what would the applications be? Yeah, so I think like any decision, there are pros and cons to each. So, you know, four of the main benefits we see out of breaking them up would be competition, cash flow, possible regulatory efficiencies, and talent. Uh, To dive into those a little bit deeper, on the competition side, like any marketplace, increased competition is typically good for the end user. There's more opportunities for small players with big ideas to enter and succeed and drive better experiences across the board. Obviously, you know, taking someone like Zoom, for example, they do a better job at video calls than many of their competitors as a standalone service. On the cash flow side, reduced efficiency isn't always bad. It means cash is being spent. For example, if there's 10 companies doing similar things and there's 10 times the cash flow to services like Microsoft's Azure and and AWS and velocity of money and productivity are always positively correlated. Uh, So there'll certainly be a number of benefactors in breaking up those large incumbents perspective. Possible regulatory efficiency, so the same way that Glass-Steagall created the FDIC, I think at this point in time, it's honestly really needed for a similar regulatory body to help on the tech side. If anyone's listened to those congressional hearings, there's clearly a big learning curve on the public sector side where you know there really ought to be some people that come with a strong background in the tech sector that understand the tiny minutia and the moving parts behind uh, what's going on, you know, for people like Facebook and Chamath Polyapia said this before, essentially the code was written in such a way that it's interwoven and, you know, breaking it up can have unforeseen consequences and it can be very difficult to do. But uh, the regulatory efficiency in general, uh, I think would be an all around positive. And then lastly, on the talent side, you know, one of the main complaints, and we're here in Silicon Valley from, from the startups in our ecosystem, is that people like Facebook and Google and other big companies have such a massive balance sheet they can afford to pay, 
you know, a million bucks a year to some engineer for a very specific purpose, plus RFUs. And, and that talent, you know, may be better used elsewhere in a capacity where those people might be able to make a more meaningful different, uh, difference in the world and not just some incremental change for Google or, or Facebook and, you know, one key area. On the con side and in some detriments, kind of the key areas here, I would say competition, the other side of competition, costs, and uh, then overall efficiency. Obviously, too much competition can be a waste of resources and introduces fragmented markets, uh, which only reduce productivity in the end. And I, I think especially after some sort of initial breakup, this would definitely be the case uh, if you had, you know, 10 different competitors to Microsoft Word and all uh, all of those needed support for each other's formatting. You know, it's a 10 by 10 relationship with a hundred possible outcomes there. And the marginal benefit of added competitors falls quickly with software, uh, which often follows a winner take all type phenomenon. So ultimately we may in the end be back at square one again, uh, once a winner does take all. On the cost side is packages, package services, I think are eliminated and users need to manage across new and in segregated platforms linked to higher costs and operational inefficiencies. I, I think also, depending on how these companies are proposed to be broken up, you have different segments of a business where the unit economics may not make sense. Uh, you know, if Amazon, for example, uh, just an arbitrary example here is running project A, something that would greatly benefit customers in the long term, but the unit economics aren't great. So it's being subsidized by the revenue from AWS. You, you may unintentionally defund something that could have a long-term benefit if companies are forced to segregate that part of the business and then discontinue it if it's really not in the best interest of shareholders. So you could have, you know, somewhat of a conflict uh, between shareholders and Again, the long-term viability of some of these um, opportunities. And then from an efficiency side, you know, large tech companies have infrastructure already in place, which is why it's so easy for them to build new applications with a smaller amount of engineers than required for a new startup. Uh, you know, Spotify has 4,400 employees. You think Apple has, you know, more than 1,000 employees working on Apple's music? Probably not. So I think that those would be, you know, mostly the the detriments that I would see in the immediate future of breaking them up. I think the uh, sum of parts is, is really important, as you just described there, Sean. And th that's really on the big tech side. But if we take a look more at the initial public offerings, uh, according to PitchBook this year, the U.S. had about 70 venture-backed IPOs. China has about 92. Today, we even saw Ant Group is teed up for the biggest ever IPO at 34 billion, whereas Europe really only has had 26. Uh, what explains the the big differences in success of American and, and Chinese uh, companies being able to to really push their their IPOs versus what's happening with with Europe's relative weakness compared to the others? Yeah, so I think it may be good to mention you know, just what the IPO environment looks like in, in China and the U.S. first. So uh, in, in China from 2015 to 2019, IPO funds raised basically grew from 58, almost 59 billion to 77.9 billion as of 2019 last year. And then other equity raised has shrunk dramatically 
that's gone from about 326 billion down to 133 billion. So, you know, almost a third there. And China is generally carried by larger IPOs. I mean, we're seeing that, like you mentioned, with Ant Group coming up, which it will, you know, on paper now surpass Saudi Aramco. Alibaba last year was the big one. And last year they represented um, almost 17% of China's total IPO fundraising where they do have a, a larger total count of IPOs, like you said, compared to the U.S. Um, the U.S., to, to contrast there, versus China's $77.9 billion IPO market last year, the China, uh, U.S. was at $56 billion. That grew from 32 in, in the same 2015, so a huge rate of growth in the U.S., and I think everyone listening to this podcast will likely have, an, uh, have a sense of this already, but TMT, technology, media telecoms, and SPACs represented almost 64% of the IPO volume last year versus China, which had 40% in retail consumer goods and services, 23 in industrials, and 22 in TMT. Uh, For the U.S., Uber, obviously last year was the the largest IPO. That was about 14%, so not as big relatively as that, but, but still up there. I think the big difference, U.S. and China, you know, you have a much larger handful uh, of companies in the middle, uh, you know, being people like Last Lift, Smile Direct Club, Fastly Zoom, people like that. And I think also, especially from this side of the world, there's a big part of the ecosystem, infrastructure, and culture that is very, very difficult to replicate in a place like Europe. Uh, a large majority of venture-backed IPOs in, in the U.S. are Silicon Valley-funded uh, companies. And, you know, being the dominant force in entrepreneurship and venture funding, you know, there's, it's definitely fostered a certain culture for the people that, that live here. It, Grant and I, both being from the North Bay in, in Marin County, it, it is still a, a very big bubble, I would say, in terms of the type of culture that's here versus other parts of the Bay Area, even, let alone the rest of the U.S. or, or a different country. And you really have this virtuous cycle, I would say, where, you know, the relationship between Stanford and, and, and Sandhill, where a lot of the Stanford grads go into tech, they do very well, they instill those lessons in their kids, then their kids go to Stanford, and it's kind of rinse and repeat. And I think it just... It, brings a whole different attitude where people are starting to look at these things from a very young age. I don't think you really find that anywhere else in the world. In Europe's case, over the last decade, there's been about a third of the world's startups total. However, only 14% were unicorns. That is, you know, companies with billion dollar plus valuation. Uh, and ultimately, I think what it comes down to, Europe has one, a scalability problem, and two, unfavorable regulations with respect to company ownership. So something that, you know, executives from Stripe, TransferWise, and others have brought up to EU lawmakers. On the scalability side, only about 8% of European startups reach Series D fundraising compared to their U.S. counterparts. So in that part of their life, there is a almost not a stall, but a slowdown in growth where it seems to be more de-risking of the companies where in in the U.S. and China, they're really continuing that growth side fundraising uh, all the way through IPO to make them bigger companies and and more unicorns are coming out of those countries as a result. And all of this, I, I think, you know, 
is very clear that it basically has amounted to less risk being taken. And that's in the startup world where most of the results are being driven. I, I think it's also clear that something needs to change on the employee stock ownership side. It's just highly fragmented and inefficient. There's more levies that companies need to pay on employee stock options, not the same tax deferral incentives as there are in the U.S. and the ability to, to reach lower strike prices than for previous funding round valuations are pushing a lot of those would-be European entrepreneurs over to the U.S. or other markets. Uh, looking at that on, on our side as well, 55% of the billion-dollar-plus companies have immigrant founders. So I think it has contributed to the U.S. market for IPOs and startups much more favorably than it has for the European Union to really retain those uh, retain those workers. It's a great point you made at the end there because we are seeing a lot of European companies list in New York rather than London and, and Frankfurt and Amsterdam. Uh, one IPO that was a little bit different was Spotify, the music streaming company a couple years ago, and they did a uh, direct listing. Do you think moving forward, we'll see European uh, companies direct list instead of the traditional IPO model? Yeah, I think so. I, I think both the direct listing and, and SPACs have become extremely prevalent. I, I think in any scenario, <laughs> you know, you need to look at the objectives and, and what they are. But I think that the traditional IPO, giving the high costs and the conflict of interest between iBankers and, and the wealth management business and who was actually on the buy side of the IPO really pushes people more in favor of a direct listing or a SPAC. And I think you'll start to see that trend continue. And you know, hopefully it helps out the European uh, IPO market a little bit more. I, I mean, I guess, you know, we, we've talked about our relative strengths, especially when it comes to venture capital IPOs. And I mean, as much as I'd like to say that technological development, you know, right now is as American as, you know, Budweiser or Apple seems like we're losing the race in 5G. I mean, I, China's had a couple, you know, setbacks. I saw recently that, you know, Singapore uh, rejected Huawei and decided to go with uh, Nokia. But still, I mean, it seems like we're really late to the game. I mean, Apple just unveiled 5G capable iPhone models. Why did we fall so far behind in the race to 5G and how, how can we catch up? So I, I think in you know, framing the question here, maybe a better question is how did China get so far ahead? Uh, I think there's benefits to having a, a controlling government in this circumstance where quicker adoption of technologies like 5G and, and mobile payments is more readily available and, and possible. But, you know, at the local level, for example, here in the U.S., there's there's more concern about some of the radiation from 5G towers and their placement relative to residential areas. Uh, there aren't really any long-term studies yet about the health effects that, that this could have. Uh, you've seen a couple come out of, of Europe, but you know nothing that you're able to really sink your teeth into. And I, I think it's a, just a different priority set for China versus the US. Uh, China's pouring a huge amount of money and resources into becoming the world leader in technology and is far more at this time economically driven than the, the U.S., where at home, you know, we have a lot of 
you know, the social uh, impacts that we need to work through, you know, racial injustice, inequality, immigration, healthcare, education. I, I think it's a attention is more spread and resources are behind other things, whereas China just has, you know, the economic growth in their sites by means of, of technology and especially here where, you know, you, you may get policies that are reversed every four to eight years between, you know, switching uh, elected parties. So I, I think it, short answer to question, uh, as a Chinese co-worker had put it, if the state in China decides traffic would be more efficient by putting a road where your house is, guess what? You, you better pack your bags. <laughs> They're coming whether you like it or not. <laughs> That's for sure. And <laughs> staying on this of, of China here, uh, the state currently has roughly 51,000 state-owned firms that's worth about $29 trillion and employ about 20 million people. There's, as you mentioned, really no multi-party debates on financing, and they can sure up supply lines rather quickly. How, how much does this one-party system impact the technological development in the 21st century? So uh, I think China and, and similar governments have an edge here if they're right. So the benefit of democratic and representative governments are good because there's a deliberation and debate, like you said, over policies and strategies, which usually lends itself to a more well-rounded outcome, kind of forces people to think about the different unknowns and, and different perspectives. And I would say, you know, maybe on that side, there's more diligence and perspective brought to the conversation. But if China puts all of their momentum and direction behind the, the same few initiatives and they're wrong about some of those details or the assumptions being used, it could wind up being, you know, a far greater cost to them than, than being first to market. Uh, I mean, if you take, you know, that 5G tower radiation health example, uh, mentioned earlier, if that is going to have a more lasting and, and negative impact on their current processes and, and how it affects their citizens and where they're putting these towers, that that could be a far more detrimental thing to the other overall health of their people and, and working class than spending a little bit more time deliberating and getting it right the first time through. And I think it, you know, at the end of the day, the, in the U.S., the market will dictate who, who the leaders are by spending their dollars on someone who fits their needs or more closely aligned with their belief system in China. Their market leaders and companies are, are just dictated by the state. And that's it. And that being said, I, I think, you know, we're very optimistic about Chinese technology and, and where they're likely to go. And I do think that it's very, very likely that we'll see them past the U.S. as the world's largest economy in, in the near future. So if we think about China's economy, it is slowing a bit compared to the growth over the last decade. They have an aging population, environmental uh, degradation, as you mentioned. How is that going to impact the Made in China 2020 as they're really becoming the leaders in semiconductors, especially as now we're seeing Washington take a, a, a much harder stance on China? So, I mean, I think that they are still have a massive working population with highly specialized skill sets. I mean, they contribute a significant amount of hours to education in these areas. And again, I mean, I think that they're in a position where 
it's almost <laughs> stop at nothing to get it done. And I do think that there's some lag effect. I think, like you said, you've, you've seen things slowing marginally, but as an overall growth rate, it's still growing much, much more quickly than, than the U S is. So I think the growth rate's slowing. I think it, 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 you know, could be a temporary thing just given um, some of the setbacks they've having having COVID and the workforce that's there now and, and really where dollars are being invested. And one thing, just kind of to kind of move off topic a little bit, and um, Sagar, I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion on this one. I mean, right now, despite what we've seen as a couple sell-offs, I mean, the NASDAQ has still grown 26.6% year-to-date. Uh, I mean, how much of a bubble are we in? And is this could be that, you know, technology is more immune to some of the volatility that's been caused by uh, the breakdown of stimulus talks uh, than other sectors were? Thanks for a great set of questions. And uh, and I'm excited to join the podcast. I, I think you raise a really uh, great point, which is at, at a high level, it's clear that COVID-19 has changed our lives and the extra uncertainty and volatility has certainly been jarring. Uh, I guess to answer your, your question about being in a bubble, uh, there, there are certainly some areas that are inflated in value. Although I, I do think the broader implied perspective uh, with the benefit of intermarket analysis is that in a low interest rate environment with trillions of dollars of money creation from central banks, there is worldwide inflation of certain financial assets. And so what that really means is that from a valuation perspective, interest rates govern discount rates and cost of capital. And as those go down, then the discounted present value generally increases. And so within the fixed income markets, there are trillions of dollars of debt securities that have now literally flipped from being paying risk-free interest rates via sovereign debts to now providing interest-free risk. And that delta and that difference is really impactful here. And investors now are increasingly allocating more and more funds into equities and are okay to a certain degree with buying into the S&P 500 and NASDAQ at elevated price multiples. And really as a consequence of a zero interest rate environment is that in the absence of a meaningful hurdle rate, investors are increasingly willing to invest in assets with really any positive return prospects, as opposed to traditionally only investing in assets with high positive return prospects. So what we see is really in a continued low interest rate environment for sovereign debt yields worldwide is that it's entirely plausible that financial asset inflation will continue to occur. And some of these bubblish type tendencies may only increase in the near future. And I do think that the fundamental reason that many technology companies command high price multiples, uh, since you mentioned NASDAQ, we'll, we'll use technology price multiples as an example, is that, is that investors fundamentally love recurring revenue. And as, as simple as that idea may sound, we, we can see this already uh, in, in prior examples. So for example, similar to the idea of uh, investors liking recurring income from debt investments, such as uh, coupon payments on their bonds, or they like the reoccurring income that they receive from dividend paying stocks vis-a-vis the dividend payments, or in the case of rental properties, you get your monthly uh, recurring uh, rental income. The recurring SaaS business model or software as a service business model provides recurring revenue to a company. And then if you're an equity holder of 
said company, then obviously you, you're, you're an owner of the underlying business. And so what that really means is that because investors love recurring revenue, in a way, investors essentially de-risk their investment by annuitizing their investments through recurring models. And so really, how do we, how do we connect the low interest rates with recurring revenue with NASDAQ? And I think this is where when you combine these components together, you get something that's really powerful uh, in the current state of, uh, of the investment landscape, at least the way we see it. And, and this powerful conclusion is the following, which is in a world with low, zero, or even negative sovereign debt yields and low cap rates in many real estate markets, investors are increasingly searching for other forms of recurring revenue. And with the digital transformation being a strong tailwind for many companies in a number of key categories, whether it's e-commerce, cybersecurity, fintech payments, cloud computing, uh, remote work and collaboration apps, and et cetera, it is actually very much justified to pay higher price multiples or valuations for reoccurring revenue models, especially when the yields and returns from recurring revenue models are significantly higher than the recurring revenue from traditional fixed income investments in a low interest rate environment. We have seen some companies, as you just mentioned, really show their their worth in this virtual environment as COVID-19 has surged. We saw large increases in social media consumption. We don't want to get started on that on that TikTok uh, debate, but uh, we, we have seen their users go through the roof. Uh, Sean earlier mentioned Zoom with video conferencing. We've seen Microsoft really start pushing their their Teams app and e-commerce, uh, not just on Amazon, but other platforms are, are all really through the roof. How much do you think that this is a long-term trend for consumers and, or do we see a decreased usage once there's a, a rollout of a vaccine and, and folks stop working from home and are able to go back to retail stores? I think you're absolutely correct about your observations regarding these trends uh, during the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, and companies that really make these products and services are deemed so important now that they are effectively like the central nervous system of how businesses operate and how individuals spend. So if we take a step back at a, at a very high level, I think it's important to articulate the difference between short-term fads versus long-term secular trends. And so while some companies can come and go, 2020 has certainly accelerated digital adoption trends that I feel will be present for the foreseeable future. So in, in really, in, in many ways, I think the COVID-19 crisis has increased, not decreased, but actually increased the desperation for more technology in our everyday lives, ranging from biotech to news consumption to e-commerce or remote work or uh, in-home exercise platforms. Really, technology will continue to transform our everyday lives and become even more intimate with us. So, for example, we, we tend to think as, as, as humans that radio, television, and desktop computers were previously all items that we heard or saw from afar. However, today, technology is literally touching our skin with the Apple Watch and AirPods. Or in other examples, technology is actually now inserted inside the human body such as pacemakers or even neurological brain implants. So that may seem a, a very forward uh, in nature for some, but really technology has now become more and more intimate with us in, in many cases of our lives. And from a business standpoint, technology is no longer just a sector. Technology already has or will proliferate across all economic sectors. So in times of crisis, I'm of the view that the demand for innovation that solves real problems 
is actually quite high. And also in terms of people's comfort levels, switching back from consumer to business and now at the individual level, is that people's comfort level with technology is increasing in many cases. So coming back to your question of uh, are these trends like Zoom video conferencing or virtual reality, e-commerce, et cetera, are they short-term fads or are they long-term trends? And we believe that many of these are actually long-term trends because people are fundamentally reimagining the tasks that can be completed video, via video conferencing, such as telemedicine or companies going fully remote first and saying that they are allowing their employees to be work from anywhere to a certain degree. And so we're having permanent remote-only business meetings. We are having online education. And in some cases, there are even IPO roadshows and SPAC transactions that are getting completed almost entirely online. So really in the, in the case of uh, e-commerce as a category, since uh, you mentioned it in your, in your question of, um, is it a long-term uh, trend or a short-term fad? And I, I, and I think we really believe that e-commerce will be a, a long-term trend. And in fact, we've already seen this as a growing adoption historically. So for example, if we measure e-commerce revenue as a percentage of total retail sales from, from 2000 to today, in the year 2000, that percentage was less than 1%. Today, e-commerce revenue as a percentage of total retail sales is about 16.1%. And so obviously e-commerce sales spiked in 2020. And I believe that the underlying tailwinds of e-commerce will only continue for a multitude of factors, uh, but the three primarily that I, I like to focus on, which is e-commerce can increase price uniformity, number one. Number two, they make online prices more sensitive to change due to competitive forces. And number three is that they actually alter the price level of certain goods and services so that fundamentally it can actually benefit uh, consumers. And I believe Amazon is, is probably the greatest example of this category where it has widespread distribution. They want to deliver goods and services to you uh, in a faster capacity, and they want to ideally make goods and services cheaper for you in the long term, or at least as, as a percentage of, of, of total good spend. So I think all of these factors are, are really supportive of the notion that some of these trends, whether it's like you mentioned, video conferencing, e-commerce, et cetera, these are long-term trends that we believe will continue. These are not just short-term fads. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's very astute. And, you know, especially if, if we're looking at this long-term, but, you know, despite this, it, I think we've seen that in the second quarter, a lot of hedge funds are taking larger positions on industrial and financial shares with uh, less investments in tech and healthcare. You know, are we going to see the shift continuing uh, coming into this quarter? Uh, I mean, I know that, you know, everyone's buying Pelotons, but uh, someone must be buying something else too, right? So. <laughs> yeah, I think you're, you're spot on is that in, in kind of uh, taking a step back here in terms of looking at the aggregate landscape, hedge funds do have about uh, anywhere from, I would say, uh, in, in a, in a raw estimate here is, is hedge funds have trillions of dollars in assets under management and utilize a wide range of investment strategies. So I think your, uh, your comment about financials and industrials versus tech and healthcare, I think in some cases that has happened, but we also want to take the, tr these types of trends in, in context, given the trillions of dollars in the hedge fund ecosystem uh, from a relative value perspective or from traditional value focused investors. Uh, these sector rotations seem reasonable if those investors are both betting on valuation mean reversion 
and betting on significant economic recovery in the near term. And the reason I stress both there is that financials and industrials are historically cyclical or economically sensitive sectors. And at the same time, valuation mean reversion, in the case of if they have low valuation multiples, then those multiples themselves need to increase to mean revert. So that's why the both category is really critical there. Now, currently, many technology and healthcare companies do trade at high price multiples. And when companies trade at low price multiples, there are typically only a handful of reasons why this may be occurring. So, for example, one reason could simply be that a company is fundamentally mispriced or undervalued, in which case that actually presents a really great uh, investing opportunity. Uh, on the other hand, though, high business risk leads to uncertainty, which often leads to lower valuations and lower prices. Uh, on, uh, as, a, as a correlator to that, too, is that if there is a lack of recurring revenue or predictability of, of future financials of a company, that may impair the market cap of a company, as well as the fact that if investors express skepticism on the durability of a company's future cash flows or assets, then there's a likelihood of valuations being decreased. So as a quick example is if you're earning uh, X amount of cash flows today as a business and 10 years from now, those cash flows are going to be cut in half, then valuation-wise, yeah, you want to take that into account when building those multiples compared to a set of cash flows that are apparent today and are estimated to 10x over the next five years. Well, those two companies uh, would have two very different set of valuations there. And so what that really comes down to, and I think this is really the fundamental question that many investors are, are discussing today, whether as individual retail investors, institutional investors, or uh, overall asset managers, is that really the, the, the fundamental question comes down to the following, which is, is it better to own a high quality business at premium prices, or is it better to own a challenge business model at low prices? And that fundamentally, I think, will determine over the next 5, 10, 15 years on the types of returns investors will receive. Absolutely. And if we think about long-term trends, automation is definitely something that we should be looking for as companies try to improve efficiency. And during the pandemic, uh, similar to a virtual world, we have seen automation increase. There's been uh, a lot of talk that the disruptive innovation and, and job loss caused by the automation is likely to be permanent. We're going to continue to see job losses and unemployment not come down as, as, as fast as we would anticipate. Are the fears of automation outblown uh, in terms of, of decreasing jobs coming back or, or are they warranted for, for automation taking over? Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal question there. And I think the American spirit is blessed with technological advancement and creativity, which supports really the endogenous growth theory from an economics perspective. So being pessimistic, I've, I've generally shared this view, which is being pessimistic on technological innovation in the long term is generally a losing proposition. And so technology is not just a sector, in my view, it's it's really technology is an increasing and integral part of business operations for many companies and many individuals. And inefficiency, existing high margins, and low quality experiences are really the seeds to future innovation. So technology can really fundamentally improve consumer experiences. They can, it can increase revenue, it can decrease costs. Technology can enhance efficiency and enable global distribution and do many, many other positive things. 
And so really from a, a positivity perspective uh, toward technology, in my view, it's the fact that for modern companies today, the new operating system for companies involves three categories. Number one is technology. Number two is mission. And number three is culture. So when you have that three-prong approach of technology, mission, and culture, I think that will be the new way that many companies govern themselves and how they go about building products and services and, and really creating new and disruptive technologies in the future. Now, that being said, well, for all the positivity that technology has, nonetheless, it's important to acknowledge and recognize that there is a situation associated with jobs and automation, as you eloquently brought up earlier, which that it, since the inception of America, technology has been a net job creator, but nonetheless, it has replaced certain jobs and created new ones. So I'll give you just a quick example here is, is that, for example, in the, in the 1700s, right, th there were no software developers and no auto mechanics, right? Those jobs simply didn't exist. Um, so those jobs were created with technology, obviously, right? But on the other hand, certain jobs like pin setters at bowling alleys or elevator operators aren't prevalent anymore. So we see this creative destruction, if you will, of some jobs just lose uh, the growing share of importance and other jobs uh, are, are newly created with new forms of technology. And really, at the end of the day, growth creates prosperity. And I think people desire meeting purpose and understanding in their lives. And this is not just individually speaking or financially speaking, but just holistically in general. Uh, but if we do want to focus ex exclusively on the economic capacity there, globalization and technology are often featured in aggregate as positive attributes for capital efficiency, wealth creation, and GDP growth. But the key phrase, I believe, in, that, in my previous sentence that I mentioned is in aggregate. And, and why I want to stress that is that in aggregate is a key qualifying phrase is that because unfortunately certain communities become acutely and negatively impacted by the trends in globalization and technology. And so I'm of the view that we need actually a series of mechanisms in society to support these types of communities. So for example, some poly policymakers have suggested in the past and, and possibly uh, these may get implemented whether in America or uh, elsewhere uh, in other countries uh, is, is that there'll need to be some sort of supportive mechanism through policy and decision-making. And some of these examples may include something like job training or retraining rather and education. Uh, they may include having a permanent reduction in average work hours per individual. It may lead to universal basic income. It may lead to increases in public private partnerships or expansion of government employment opportunities through public works and infrastructure methods. It may also be a growing importance to reduce uh, the inequality in the opportunity that people have. And I think furthermore, and, and I think as, as a final point here, is that providing the inspiration for people to work on really challenging and really inspirational problems. So, for example, the space race that we had uh, in America or the Cold War, there was a sense of a collective we as an understanding amongst Americans that we want to achieve something. And it was a collective and common goal. I think if we can inspire this next set of individuals and, and this entire generation to think about solving some of the hardest problems and challenges that we face in humanity today, I think not only will we make the world a better place, obviously, but in certain cases, it will also inspire new creativity, new understanding, lift a lot of people 
up, uh, both economically and socially and, and through their happiness levels, and also just be a better place overall. And so, for example, some of these challenges that some people have referenced prior is, for example, basic research, eradication of viral diseases, ending world hunger, space travel, financial inclusion, climate decarbonization initi initiatives, uh, and you name it, the list goes on and on. And so I think we get meaning and understanding when we are passionate about working on an idea and people can be passionate about a range of ideas. So I think the idea of yes, automation will replace some jobs, but if we can give those uh, people that have been unfortunately displaced with a, a new way of challenging themselves and contributing and being happy, I think that will lead to a far better ecosystem and, and far greater societal value. So I guess all in all is if we can support those people that are displaced and at the same time unlock the efficiencies associated with automation and collaborative robots and all of these other new and sophisticated technologies, then that's a win-win in value creation in the long term. And that's really, really exciting. Yeah, thanks for a positive take on automation, Sagar. I've uh, for this past year, I felt like I've needed to join John Connor and the Terminator, you know, resistance and uh, go home and shoot my microwave. So I'm glad that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and that this can actually be a, a force for good. Yeah. Anyway, gentlemen, uh, certainly appreciate your time. We'll be airing this. So thank you, everybody, for uh, your likes and subscribes. And we'll be joining you next week. Um, and with that, we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.